How we doing? Excellent, excellent. It's great to see y'all this morning. Thank y'all for joining us. I want to spend a little time uh, talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a is very much a kind of abnormal <laughs> abnormality in Advent season. Um, we don't when we think about Advent and when we think about the arrival of Christ into the earth and we or into the uh, to the world and when we think about um, how how all of the season is geared toward that towards that Christmas season is geared towards that. One person that does not come up for us is John the Baptist. All right. John the Baptist is a little bit off the beating path, but I want to I want to talk to you about John the Baptist this morning because John the Baptist tells us something important about Advent. As we think about what waiting means, Advent is the arrival of Jesus Christ, and our theme this year, as we think about the arrival of Jesus Christ into the world, is awaiting his arrival. Is awaiting his arrival. I remember in August, the uh, August of 2010, one of my two sons were born uh, in that month, and my wife uh, had our child at Merritt Health, and we stayed just five minutes away from Merritt Health, and it was an interesting day. She had our son on a Friday, and uh, our air condition went out. August. In Mississippi. Now I got a newborn baby in no air on a Friday. So my wife is coming home pretty soon and I don't have air. And my goal was to make sure that I had air by the time she got home. Right? And so she was coming home on a Sunday. And so as I was waiting for my wife, there was no one available. There was no air condition uh technician open who could help me fix, you know, what was ailing my, my, ailing me, which was, I didn't have air and my newborn baby was coming home. And so I did what any other man would do, found some random neighbor and asked, Hey, you don't know anything about air conditions? Well, yeah, I do. I fix air conditions on the side here and there and sure well that's all I needed to hear come on man let's work on this air conditioning together and so we found out that the air conditioning had a leak sounds sounds you know easy enough right a, a leak and I mean two people that that you know one person that has never touched the air conditioning and then the other person who says he dabbles in it from here and there sure enough it should be an easy task right it wasn't an easy task two days later and several hundred dollars in Freon because we wasted it because it kept leaking as we were filling it we finally got the air conditioner fixed, and we got the air conditioner fixed just in time for little Elijah James Crawford to come to the house. And I felt like I had accomplished something. The house was filthy, by the way, but who cares about that? At least, at least my son had air. That was my task. And so I was patiently waiting for my son, but I was not waiting passively for my son. Waiting requires oftentimes a good deal of preparation. And so the reason why we're talking about John the Baptist this morning is because John the Baptist helps us understand what it means to wait on Christ. It's not, it's not a passive waiting simply. I mean, we mentioned this on last week. The Christian life is marked by a hopeful and patient waiting for an arrival. But John shows us that it is a waiting with preparation. So today we want to answer the question for this Advent season. What does the life what does a life preparing for Christ's arrival actually look like? 
And in answering that question, what I hope we learn today is what it means to live the prepared life now that he has arrived and is coming back. In reading John, we learn that waiting is marked by two key markings, if you will. The first marking is waiting is marked by activity, not merely passivity. Waiting is marked by activity, not merely passivity. And the second thing we learn as we read through this text is that waiting is marked not simply by by relaxation, but it's marked by urgency. Waiting is marked by urgency. There is an urgency even to our waiting. If our waiting is indeed preparation. So first let's talk about the ideal of prep. Waiting is preparing. And it is active. Prepared waiting is active. As we read John's words, he leaves us very little doubt that our waiting is not passive. It is active. In fact, what is evident when we evaluate the life and the words of this preacher whose life we are examining this morning, John the Baptist, is that our posture in waiting is not only active, but it is repentant. Our posture in waiting is not only active, but it is repentant. Our posture in waiting is not simply passive, doing whatever you were doing before Jesus came along, but in fact, our posture in waiting is a turning towards God. John makes it clear that if we are to receive Jesus Christ, properly, then our hearts must be turned towards Jesus Christ. See, many of us in this day and age claim to be receiving Christ with our hearts turned away from Christ. That's like expecting somebody to hug you who has his back turned to you. In order to engage Jesus, we must be turned towards Jesus. John is saying the Savior is coming, so turn towards the Savior. In anticipation of his arrival. He says in verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, what John is setting in order is something very important for us here, is that our prepared, active, and repentant waiting must be genuine. It must be authentic. Because he goes on and he says, he says, it, uh, it, it, who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, in order to fully, un- now un- let me start by saying this. In order to fully understand what is taking place right here, we have to understand who he's talking to. And so it says he turns to the crowds. But Matthew gives us more details about these crowds. Matthew actually tells us that in amongst these crowds, there are Sadducees and Pharisees. Coming to the baptism. In other words, they want to see what all the talk is about. And so there are people there that are genuinely seeking repentance, turning to the Savior, turning to God in anticipation of the Savior. Then there are people there that are just curious as to what's going on, the religious elite. And so John turns to the religious elite and he says, you brew a vipers. Happy holidays. It's not, it's not what you hear on Advent, right? So, so, so what he is doing is he's literally calling out the fake repenters that is, um, that is scattered amongst the genuine repenters. 
See, even though we have people from all over Jerusalem and Judea that are coming out to meet John down at the River Jordan to be baptized in preparation to receive this Savior, we have these religious elite who have gathered with insincere, uh, insincere motives. And so John immediately confronts them because if you've read anything about John the Baptist, you know that one thing he'll never be accused of is brown nosing. John is not concerned about your position. John is not concerned about your status. John is not concerned about where you are in Jerusalem, in the, in the, in, in the Jerusalem elite. As a matter of fact, John is in the wilderness hanging out, eating locusts with honey. Now, I'm sure the honey makes it taste a little better, but still, he's wearing camel skin. John is not interested in, in, in setting good impressions for you. And so he literally speaks to the religious elite and he calls them a brood of vipers. Even in verse 20, in verse 19, in verse 20, we see John calling out the king of Judah, uh, Judea. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So John is not interested in trying to dress it up for you. As a matter of fact, he says this in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what he tells the religious elite. He says, we see that you're here. That you've come to observe and that you claim to have come to even repent. He says, but bear fruit with it. In other other words, let your fruit or let your repentance be authentic. Let your repentance be genuine. How can we determine whether the repentance that we declare we are walking in is genuine? Simple. Repentance brings fruit with it. John's message is clear to them. John's message is clear to us. Preparing for the Savior's arrival with authenticity will bring a desire to bear fruit filled with the Savior's character. Preparing for the Savior's arrival will bring fruit of love and joy and fruit of peace and fruit of righteousness and fruit of self-control. That's what repentance truly looks like. But another interesting point in, is that we see, that, or another interesting point that we see about this authentic preparation is that it is not just a being. John confronts the Sadducees and the Pharisees on their misunderstanding of these preparations being based solely on the inheritance that they have through their family line. In other words, just because you're here doesn't mean that you're repenting. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees say to themselves later on in verse uh, verse eight. We have Abraham as our father. And John says, don't say that. That doesn't matter. Are you tracking with that? Doesn't matter who your father was. He goes on and he says, for I tell you, God is able to raise up from these very stones children of Abraham. He doesn't need your family line. He can make praisers out of whomever he chooses to make them out of. Even now, he says, John says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John's point is that authentic preparation is not based on previous connections. Are you tracking with that? Maybe you did grow up in the church. Maybe your parents took you to church ever since you were five years old. Maybe you were maybe maybe you were raised in this particular church and you remember all the many times that y'all sang Christmas carols during the Advent season. Folks, that is not authentic preparation. Your connection to the church is not what makes for authentic preparation. Your turning to Jesus is. Are you tracking with me? 
Some in the crowd believed that their family lineage was enough to prepare them for the Savior's arrival, but they were mistaken. There was no pedigree worthy enough or righteous enough to have be, uh, to, to be credited with repentance. If you think that this is just on principle that John established, then you don't have to look any further than, than John chapter 8 John and, and also Acts chapter 26. John chapter 8, it's Jesus, not John the Baptist, but Jesus who tells them, yeah, sure, Abraham is your father, or Abraham is not your father like you think he is. As a matter of fact, he says, the truth be told, the devil is your father. They say, what do you mean the devil's my father? What, what kind of nonsense is this guy talking about? And then, and then Jesus gives them explanation. He says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. You hear that? Repentance. He's saying, if you were Abraham's children, you would repent. You would turn towards God. Paul says in Acts chapter 26, as he went from place to place, discipling and teaching the gospel and training people in the way, in the ways of Christ, it says in verse 20, uh, verse 20 of chapter 26, that he taught them that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. In other words, authentic repentance, genuine repentance, repentance that comes with fruit. See, we don't live a life in keeping with the Advent season and in keeping with the arrival of the Son of God if our life is void of the character and his, uh, the character of the Son of God and his impact on our lives and, and if it's void of his life in us. We don't live Advent if we live void of Jesus. Do you understand? But another quality about, about this active, prepared, and, and repentant waiting is the quality that it must be loving and sacrificial. So the people say, okay, John, what must we do? What should we do? And John says to them, he, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Normally, preparation is marked by collection and storing, isn't it? But in preparing for the Savior and preparing for the, his coming kingdom, John gives us different instructions. He tells us to share what you have. Two of the key markings of repentance in the Christian life is the sacrificial love of others and the denial of ourselves. Are you tracking with that? So after calling for genuine repentance, John is asked by the people who uh, John is asked by the people who are looking to prepare for the Savior. What shall we do? And he tells them, "Share what you have. If you got two tunics, give one away to someone who doesn't have one. If you have food, then share with those who do not have food. In other words, look to share your life and your goods with those around you. Without use your resources not with pride of collection and accumulation, but with humility and generosity." He tells the tax collectors in verse 12, those that came to be baptized, teacher, what shall we do? He says in verse 13, collect no more than you're authorized to do. The tax collectors were despised in their culture, in their day, because they were seen as arms of Rome's oppression on Jerusalem. But also, many of them were using their position and using their knowledge to scheme people. 
They were using their knowledge and using their position to exploit people and take more from them than what they were owed. And so to them, John says, repentance looks like treating others with the dignity and the honor that, that, that rejects the world's way of exploiting people for everything that you can get out of them. Use your knowledge to help people and not exploit them. That's what repentance looks like for you. And then the soldiers come along and they say, well, John, what should we do in repentance? And verse 14 says, what, and, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. The soldiers of the culture were often tempted to use their power and use their authority to take advantage of average citizens, right? John says, your repentance looks like treating the weaker and the vulnerable around you with care and compassion. Your repentance looks like using your power for the empowerment of others and not for the weakening of others. Does that make sense? In other words, what John is showing us about repentance is that repentance is never distant from our lives. Repentance is in the personal of our lives. Repentance is in the day-to-day of our lives. You can't separate how you turn towards God with how you treat people. Are you tracking with that? How you treat people is in direct connection to how you are turning to God. That's what John shows us here. You can't embrace Advent while rejecting people. Love of people and sacrifice for the other is in the very essence of Advent. We honor the Advent more when we commit ourselves to love of neighbor than we ever could in trimming a tree. Which leads to another important thing that we learn in John's instruction to us. The reason why John urges those seeking repentance to prepare in this way is because they reflect the God who has arrived into the world when they do prepare in this way. The Gospel of John tells us that it was love for the world that led to Jesus coming into the world. It was love, love for the world that led to Jesus sacrificing himself for the world in order that the world might be saved from their sin through him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so this, this repentance that looks like sacrificial love is a reflection of the savior that we await. Does that make sense? John, Jesus is constantly through his life and through his ministry showing that this is the sort of sacrificial love that is at the very heart of his nature, of his, of his personhood. It is Jesus who tells the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18, for example, to sell your possessions and, and you will have treasures in heaven and come and follow me. It's Jesus who, who, after hearing Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus was the tax collector. And once the tax collector gets saved, the tax collector says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus responds to that tax collector by saying, Today salvation has come to his house. What does he mean? 
genuine repentance has arrived. Does that make sense? John, John is preparing the people for the arrival of Jesus by pointing them towards his ways and saying, if you truly long for his arrival, you will truly pursue his ways in preparation of his arrival. Does that make sense? You won't long for his arrival and reject his ways. You long for his arrival by embracing his ways. When Jesus shows up, he calls those who commit to him to follow him and to pursue his example. Amen? The authentic, prepared, repentant Christian life is not one that is marked by words longing for his arrival, but it's marked by words and actions pursuing his ways. It is not marked just by a desire to see him arrive, but it's marked by a desire to imitate him, to imitate his example as much as our imperfect lives will allow it to, allow us to, amen? John, in calling for repentance as preparation, is also making it clear that this is not a move we can afford to delay, however. When you look at verse 15, we see that prepared waiting is urgent waiting. He says in verse 15 through 17, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them and said, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The straps of whose sandals, or the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshold, threshing floor, and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John's word here is not one that totally brings comfort, you see. It is a reassuring word for the ones who are preparing for the arrival, but it is a horrific one for the ones who are rejecting the arrival. See, the Savior who comes carries the power to save, but he also carries the power to cleanse. See, when it says, when, when, when John says that he's coming and he's coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, what we typically think about is he's coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with power. But that's not the context of fire here in this text. Read it again. It says in verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. And to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff, the fake, the inauthentic repenters, the brood of vipers that John is speaking to in this text, he will burn with unquenchable fire. So this is not the fire that tickles. Are you tracking with me? You know, a lot of times people are like, yeah, Holy Spirit and fire, fire fall fresh on us. No, that, that's, not, that's not this text. That's not what's happening here. No, this is like hellfire Jesus is talking about. This is what John is talking about. And so John is clearing the way. and He's saying those that are preparing for him, he will gather into the barn like we. But those who are rejecting him will be separated from him in unquenchable fire. That's heavy. See, as Jesus arrives to establish the kingdom on earth, he will also remove all that is outside of it. 
The first arrival to earth, we see his baptism with the Holy Spirit. But we should, but we should know that if we resist, we will also encounter the fire. When God, when God in the Old Testament, when he floods the earth, he tells us that the next time, that it will not be water, but it will be what? Will be what? Fire. This is the fire that John is highlighting. The arrival of the Savior not only brings a Savior that is coming to establish a kingdom, but by establishing a kingdom, he's coming to also separate all of those that choose not to be a part of that kingdom. In fact, Jesus, as soon as he's baptized by John, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, that he shows up and he says, repent. Same thing John said, right? For the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is close. The kingdom of God is near. Advent is the announcement that the king is here and the complete and the total fulfillment of his reign is upon us. And that means joy for those who bow the knee in worship and adoration to this arriving king. Right? But eternal sorrow for those who are forced to bow the knee. Because remember, the Bible tells us that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will bow willingly, some will bow forcefully. And so preparation is in order, not just as a good thing, but preparation is in order, listen to me, saints, as a necessary thing. Are you following me? Turn from sin, turn from the world, turn to God, turn to his only begotten son in which the father has sent into the world to save it. Speaking about John and and how his words about Advent can mess with our cheery Christmas feelings, Fleming Rutledge writes this. I want you to listen. She says, this unlovable figure is very much out of sync with our times. Yet he is one of the foremost figures of Advent, at least in the preaching calendar, followed in my Episcopal church tradition. Like John the Baptist, Advent is out of phase with its time, with our time. It encroaches upon us in an uncomfortable way, making us feel somewhat uneasy with this stubborn resistance to Christmas cheer. To be sure, we have done a pretty good job of domesticating Advent, and I am by no means above this sort of thing myself. I, every year, I used to buy Advent calendars for my children with cute little doors that open and show cute little pictures. I have, to, I have yet to find an Advent calendar that has a picture of John the Baptist, however. We really don't know exactly what to do with him. He doesn't fit into anything. And then she says this, but here he is by the river, dressed in a fashion of the wilderness and assaulting the crowds that come out to hear him, calling them brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John does not proclaim Jesus as a captivating infant smiling benevolently at groups of assorted rustics and farm animals. Instead, he cries out, he who is coming after me is mightier than I. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's Advent. That's Advent. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. 
that is that this Savior is coming. Yes, he is. He has arrived, but but it will be in the same with the same intensity that it will be joy for those that embrace this Savior. It will be horrific sorrow for those that reject this Savior. That's what his arrival means. His arrival is so urgent that John refuses to live a safe life. He is willing to demonstrate with his very own life the urgent nature of this preparation for the Savior. He confronts the king of Judah, the king of Judea. He says, goes to Herod and he says, that woman that you have is not yours. She belongs to your brother. Leave her. He dies for that. He dies for confronting him in his sin. But why does he confront him in his sin? Because he is preparing the way. John is willing to lose his life for the arrival of the king that will offer him eternal life. That's literally how urgent it was to this man. John shows us that the arrival of the king is about many things, but earthly safety isn't one of them. In preparing to receive the king, we are preparing to give up on on our will, on our own way of doing things in order to pursue his way of doing things. We are preparing to give up our own ideas in life in order to pursue a life lived and found in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to prepare for this king. And yet John still calls it good news. Because it is good news. You say, well, Pastor, I'm not sure how how good this is right now. But see, you have to understand that for those who are clinging to life, who are clinging to this life, who treat this life like it's ultimate, who say to themselves that I have to get as much as I can in this life because there is nothing else left on the other side of this. This is terrible news. For those who realize that life, however, this life doesn't possess everything that is necessary to make one whole. For those that understand that that this life is about bringing us near to God. For those that understand that that in this life that, that it cannot offer us what God will offer us in his arriving king, which is everlasting satisfaction and eternal satisfaction. For those for those people. This is good news. Because when we read in verse 21, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened. And when the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him and bodily formed like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. In other words, this is the one you've been waiting for. Those of you who ate, Those of you who long for something more, those of you who realize that this life cannot offer what you really desire and what you really thirst for, this is the one that you've been waiting for. Submit your life to him. He has arrived, and so has his kingdom. And by submitting your life to him, you have have part in that kingdom. You become part of his family. And so it is good news. It is spectacular news. It is magnificent news. 
His arrival was approved by God the Father in that moment. Meaning that what we have longed for has finally arrived in the person and in the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And so if you are on the fence today about whether or not you should be embracing him as Lord, I just want to fix your attention on Advent. And I just want to call you to a waiting, but an urgent waiting. A waiting that is not content with the status quo of this life, but a waiting who he, but a waiting that heeds the words of John the Baptist when he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Prepare his way, amen.